0: All right. Good morning and welcome to Redeemer's. If you are new here, my name is Brett. I'm one of the pastors leaders here at the church. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew 6. You can also put a marker in Genesis 1 if you would like, as well as 1 Peter chapter 2 and in good time we will get to those places. Let's pray. Jesus, you are king. And as the entire New Testament echoes that over and over again, we continue to proclaim it. You are Lord, you are king, you reign. You have invited us into your kingdom to share the good news of Jesus, the hope that you brought to our lives. So I ask and I pray that that would continue to ring true in our hearts, that you would reign on the throne of our lives, and that we would spread your reign in this community, that people would see your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about kingdom as vocation. Now, here's the deal. Those are two words, kingdom and vocation, that you probably don't use too often in your vocabulary, are they? I mean, I don't know the last time, maybe unless you sat around here the last year, where you actually thought about kingdom, or you thought about this term of vocation, and oh my goodness, what could they possibly mean when some idiot preacher puts them together, right? Is he making up terms and words? And so this morning, we're going to unpack and uncover what I really believe to be a deep theological issue surrounding both kingdom and vocation. Now, let me just give some common definitions for you this morning. A common definition of kingdom is a country, state, or territory ruled by a king or queen. When we look at our current context here in the West we would minimize or excuse half of that statement because we actually broke away from kings and queens ruling over us. But if you consider the reality of what's being said here, is it's somebody ruling, whether it be a president or a governor, over a territory, a region, an area. Anybody talked about a president or governor in the last year? (laughs) Last month? Last week? How was your Christmas, <laughs> right? Last 24 hours? Okay, okay, kingdom. You guys talk about kingdom. You get kingdom. Kingdom's a sphere, a place, a rule, a reign in which people are existing in and somebody is over. Vocation. A common definition of vocation is a trade or profession. Anybody talk about vocation in the last year? Anybody read articles on the mass exodus of vocation in the last year, right? Or the last six months, or you flip open your news and every morning you continue to read about vocation. These two ideas, whether we are tuned into it or not, are two themes that have run through culture that continue to permeate our conversation from society to society, generation to generation. And we're having these conversations, whether they're awkward or fun or exciting or boring, constantly about this idea of both kingdom and vocation. And as we consider this this morning in light of kingdom, the gospel, the good news of Jesus... I want to spend some time thinking through the implications of both kingdom and vocation. And where we're actually going to start is going to be in Genesis 1, where we're going to look at vocation. We're going to move very briefly to Matthew chapter 6, where we're going to talk about kingdom. And then we're going to end up in 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 13, where we see kingdom as vocation. So this morning, the first thing I want you to hear is in this Genesis passage. It's very, very intriguing. We've studied this from, I don't know, uh, 10,000 different angles, right, church? All right, I see Sandy back there and Keith. They've been at Redeemers for, what, like nine years, almost since our existence. How many times have we been in Genesis 1? Forever. So, so many times, and I've looked at it in so many different ways. And so I want to just read to you a little bit of this text. In verse 3, it says, God said... Let there be light, there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and he did what? God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. God said, that there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and that it separate the waters from the waters, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that they were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, and there was second day. And we can continue to go through the narrative of creation, and we can see time and time again that God is calling something into existence. Now, place that over there. God is calling something into existence. What is vocation? We talk about it in terms of a job, or profession, that common understanding where really when we take the word in its um, pretty primitive, a secularized way, vocation refers to one's paid work. Whether they've trained for this job, they spent time going to school for this job, they've had vocational education as an apprentice in this job, this is what we think of In terms of vocation. I'll give you a dictionary definition. A strong feeling of suitability for a particular career or occupation. Not all of us have a vocation to be nurses or doctors. Some of you would have terrible bedside manner. I know you. Right? A person's employment or main occupation. Here's another definition. Especially regarding as a particular worthy and requiring great dedication. Now this is where it gets really interesting. The word vocation comes from the Latin word vocatio or vocare, which translates to calling, calling, okay? I want you to think, when you hear the word vocation this morning, I want you to think about it in terms of the word calling. This word calling is something that we're very familiar with if you've spent time in the scriptures, Or this idea of calling is something you're very familiar with. If you spend time with passionate people, I feel called to make a move. I feel called to take a job. I felt called to follow Jesus. It's this language that is both familiar to us today as well as in ancient society. For example, in pre-Christian history, with the Greeks and Romans, elites held intellectual work in highest esteem and understood the intellectual life as the highest vocation or calling that one could come to. They're called to it. That's how they thought of this idea of vocation. In the Old and New Testament, it is permeated with this idea of vocation and calling as, listen, relational, namely in relation to God. Let me give you some examples. The Hebrew word khalin means to name or to summon and is permeated in the Old Testament narrative. It's used here in Genesis. To call, to name, is to summon, is to call out. Further, the Hebrew term kahal is used to denote the assembly God called to himself. In the New Testament, the assembly of the brethren, those coming together, they use the word ecclesia, which are those who are what? Called out ones. They're called out together. Ecclesia. it comes from the root word klesis, and we have that literal idea that you are being called out. Calling is not an uncommon kind of language in the scripture. And when we think about vocation, we think about calling, we can't just lock ourselves into the modern idea that a vocation is a profession you do to make money, but it's something far more holistic and big that humans are actually called to. Vocation is bigger than what you do for money. So let's kind of take a look at this. In Genesis 1, God is calling out the world into existence and he's giving it meaning and purpose. First place, this idea, this thought process of called vocation is being used. And what the author of Genesis is doing in this context, he's saying all things, all creation has this calling from God to uh, have this response towards God, to glorify him, to reflect his beauty, to reflect his goodness. As the scripture says there, God created and it was... Good, good, you're listening. God created and it was... Yeah, he makes things and it is good. And so the author of Genesis is setting forth this premise that all that God is calling out, and as we understand this, is this vocation, and it's good in God's eyes. In Psalm 103, this is really important for us. Psalmist writes, Know that the Lord, He is God, He made us, and we are His. He's called us. He is good. We're part of that creation. He is good, and he has called us, and he's placed this calling on our lives. What this means for you, what this means for me, is very early on, I would say before work and play, before toil, there's calling, and it's a calling to relationship with God. Calling, calling is central. God, in fact, gives specific vocation to Adam and Eve in this text. We're gonna look at just three. First of all, it says that God, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, he said, let us make man in our image. We're familiar with the term, the imago Dei, the very image of God. And as we've talked about so often, Genesis is the construction of this temple-esque area in which heaven kisses earth. God and man are dwelling together in unity. It's this beautiful picture A microcosm of the temple in the heavens. Here we have the temple here on earth. And he places what? An image. He places humanity. He places man in there to do what? To reflect God's image to the world and to reflect who God is to all the surrounding around us. That is what it is to be an image bearer reflecting God's glory. And what he does in doing so is he calls us to proper relationship with himself. He calls us into relationship with himself. The first calling for humanity, the first vocation for humanity is that to be in relationship with God. Essential for us. Next, we see in this text that God tells Adam and Eve, both of them, to subdue the earth to rule, to reign, to actually go and take and see what he did and cause that to expand across the world. Go and make. Go and procreate. As I have created you, I have given you the ability to create. God calls us also vocationally to work. And finally, God calls us this calling to obedience. He places a tree in the midst of the garden. He says, look, guys, don't eat this one. Why? Trust me. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we know how that story unravels. There is a call on humanity to relationship, to work, to obedience unto God. It's a holistic life calling that God has given us. What does this mean? Why am I making a case for this? It's incredibly important that we grasp the idea that vocation is not just what you do for living, for money, but it's what God has established that we actually do in the world that he has created. N.T. Wright, love N.T. Wright, brilliant. He talks about, and he calls them, seven vocations. These seven vocations are present, present, He uses words like they're inarticulate, aspirations, and impulsions. (laughs) And you're all getting out your dictionary and going, how can we think this through? Let me just bring them down to baseline level. We know them in our bones. They're innate. They're in us. These vocations, these things that humans are to be about. Let me give them to you. Justice, beauty, spirituality, relationships. Freedom, truth, power. Let me just take justice. Do you feel a calling to justice? I have young kids, right? Take any young kid, a five-year-old, put them on the playground with a nine-year-old. And when the nine-year-old comes out and steals the five-year-old's ball, the five-year-old knows something, right? I have been ripped off. And I'm going to go kick and scream and cry and tell somebody because an injustice has happened in my life. These is, this is what N.T. is talking about. These things, they're in our bones. We know them. When we see beauty, we know beauty. When we see the sunrise or set and we see God's artistry that's been painted in the sky, it can feel a little bit elusive to us because it's there and then it's gone. But when we see it, we grasp it, we understand it. And it ought to cause us to go, oh, God. God. God is good, I see his beauty. God is good, I see his justice at work. God is good, I see it in my relationships that I have with others. God is good when power is used rightly and not inverted on itself and used to trample over the weak and the marginalized. And we can go through these and pinpoint exactly what Wright is saying. These are the vocations that humanity is to be about to cause the flourishing of the world around us. But, but, dun, 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 Genesis 3, right? We also know deep in our bones that something has gone terribly wrong. If you're a Christian, you have a narrative to where this all went wrong. You have a place to pinpoint precisely what happened when we rebelled against God. And this couple, they said, not your way, God. I know how we're supposed to vocationally understand humanity, but we want to choose for ourselves because what we like to do is bend justice towards our liking to justify why we steal the ball when we're a nine-year-old because we needed it to play, even though it was the five-year-old's ball and he was by himself. Common narrative on the playground. Bending justice is something that humanity has participated in. We want to determine our own justice and define for ourselves what beauty is what purpose is, what relationships should look like, what spirituality should be. We want to define for ourselves power. We want to define for ourselves truth in this society. We want to define for ourselves these seven things and we see where this are all gone absolutely wrong. and It's been distorted. Now this is for fun and this is for free. You'll like it. Thank you. We're going to take the actual idea that people have when I say vocation in terms of just work and see how we've inverted work. And I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna let an author from the Atlantic do it. Anybody familiar with the Atlantic? It's like, kind of like a, if you're not, that's okay. I won't even get into it. I'll put my foot in my mouth. Let's just say they don't talk a lot about Jesus. (laughs) All right? This article is called The Gospel of Work. I've shared it years ago. It's too good to not share today, and I guarantee I share it again at some point. The decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheism. Some people worship beauty. Hmm, interesting, one of those seven, right? Some worship political identities. That would maybe be under the lines of, like, power. Okay? And others worship their children. Oh, man. But everybody worships something, and workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. What is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. And the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. Perhaps long hours are part of an arms race for status and income amongst the money elite. Or maybe the logic here isn't economic at all. It's emotional emotional. Even spiritual, one of those seven pillars that N.T. Wright is talking about that the world wants to put their fingers on, but they can't quite grasp. Right? That it's spiritual. Oh, right, Where I lost my place. Here we go. The best-educated and highest-earning Americans who have Americans who can have whatever they want have chosen the office for the same reason that devout Christians attend church on Sundays. It's where they feel most themselves. For many of today's rich, there is no such thing as leisure in the classic sense. Work is their play. Economist Robert Frank wrote in the Wall Street Journal, building wealth to them is a creative process and the closest thing they have to fun. We've created this idea that the meaning of life should be found in work, says Oren Koss, the author of the book, The Once and Future Worker. We tell young people that their work should be their passion. Anybody hear that narrative today? Your work should be your passion. Don't give up until you find a job that you love. We say you should be changing the world. We tell them that this is the message in the commencement address in pop culture and frankly in media, including the Atlantic. But our desks were never meant to be altars. Gosh, I read that years ago for the first time and just went, oh my goodness. That's a prophetic word for our culture. Your desk was never meant to be your altar. The modern labor force evolved to serve the needs of consumer capitalists, not to satisfy tens of million people seeking transcendence at their office. It's hard to self-actualize on the job if you're a cashier, one of the most common occupations in the U.S. Even the best white-collared roles have long periods of stasis, boredom, or busywork. This mismatch between expectation and reality is a recipe for severe disappointment, if not outright misery, and it might explain why rates of depression and anxiety in the U.S. are substantially higher than they were in the 80s, according to a 2014 study. Almost done. One of the benefits of being an observant Christian, Muslim, or Zoroastrian, we'll talk about that one later, is that God-fearing worshipers put their faith in an intangible and unfalsifiable force of goodness. But work is tangible and success is often falsified. To make either the centerpiece of one's life is to place one's esteem in the mercurial hands of the market. To be a workist is to worship a God with firing power. The problem with this gospel, your dream job is out there. Never stop hustling. It's a blueprint for spiritual and physical exhaustion. Long hours don't make anybody more productive or creative. They make people stressed, tired, and bitter. But the overwork myth survives because they justify the extreme wealth created for a small group of elite techies. <sighs> if you want it, I'll send it to you later. But what it essentially is being said here this morning, what I want you to hear this morning, is when we elevate one of these vocations as the ultimate in our lives, it really becomes this term that Christians use as idolatry. As the scripture talks about as idolatry. And it becomes what we live for. And when we live for it, we serve it. And we're serving something that was never meant to satisfy us. And in so doing, we become exhausted, burned out, and turned upside down. And ultimately, inside out, we turn on one another. And what needs to happen is a redemptive moment where things have gone wrong. There needs to be a better way to look at life. There needs to be a better way to make this right. When we overvalue something like work and have this huge emphasis on it, you begin to see the destruction of family. People distort and use it for identity, hope, and belonging. This also means that work has lost its beauty. Work can lose its sense of justice. Maybe you've served at the hands of an unjust employer keep it going, keep going, keep moving, especially when our work does injustice in this world to others and to employees. It can even replace our spirituality. In the vocation of work, we've lost our true sense of what it means to have a vocation towards God. Vocation. Got it? It's not just work. Got it? Okay. Kingdom of God. It's only one page of notes, don't worry. (laughs) Kingdom of God, Matthew 6.33. Why don't you turn over there? If you want to know more about the kingdom of God, we spent an entire year in Matthew in it. So you can go back and listen. I don't think there's a teaching we didn't talk about kingdom. In Matthew six thirty-three, Jesus sets forth really what it looks like. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Look, we can't land here. We're just not going to be able to land here, but we're going to do a few things. What is kingdom or this kingdom of God? It's God's rule, God's reign, over God's realm, God's people. Got it? All right? God's rule, God's reign, over God's realm, which is God's people. That's kingdom of God. George Eldon Ladd, he demonstrates the complexity of the kingdom of God in this short paragraph. The kingdom is a present reality, Matthew 12, and yet it is a future blessing, 1 Corinthians 15. It is an inner spiritual redemptive blessing, Romans 14, which can be expressed only by way of new birth, John 3. Yet it'll have to do with the government of the nations of the world, Revelation 11. The kingdom is a realm into which men enter now, Matthew 21. And yet it is a realm in which they will enter tomorrow, Matthew 8. It is at the same time a gift of God which will be bestowed upon, which will be bestowed by God in the future, Luke 12. And yet which must be received in the present. You got it? Kingdom. Here, not yet. We good with that? We okay with that? Why is this so necessary? The kingdom is important and necessary because it is really the right-side-up kingdom. It takes all the values of the world, which are upside down today, get power however you might, even if it means telling lies, breaking bonds, hurting other people, and it inverts them back to the way in which they should have been in Genesis. You see, the world has its headwinds in the fall and says, do whatever it takes for you to be able to Make your own choices and determine right and wrong and you to be at the head of your own life. Kingdom of God says, no, 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 no. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. And we come underneath of who he is. If you're in that, if you submit to him, you're invited into his kingdom. Got news for you. If your kingdom gets taken over by somebody else's kingdom, you begin to adopt the person's kingdom who overtook you or you pretty much die, right? Or you rot in jail. You become a follower of their rule, of their reign, of their life. And this is what Jesus is inviting us into. His kingdom, as followers of Jesus, we're saying, yes, Jesus, you rule, you are king. And so we want to seek justice, beauty, spirituality, relationships, freedom, truth, power, through what? The resurrection. The resurrection is, means this idea of new creation, which means new vocation. You orient yourself towards the things of God. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. There's kingdom. We good? Good. Okay. Kingdom as vocation, where we're going to land here this morning. What does this look like? We stated, vocation cannot narrowly be said to just be the thing that you labor at or do for work. Nor should vocation be divided between secular and sacred, which really isn't a thing that we're having to combat that much anymore, but it still exists for some people where they want to divide out life of spirituality versus life in the secular world. Uh, We're seeing a much more holistic approach where we're saying, look, God reigns, God is true, and we want to bring Jesus to wherever we go. Vocation is best conceived as this sum total of God's mandate for our lives. We're motivated by him and lived out in the kingdom, lived out in this context of the kingdom of God. And as a kingdom people, we're saying yes to his goodness, yes to Jesus has come, yes to the good news of the gospel. As a kingdom people, it is vocation for our lives, put right, restored, redeemed. It's actually living out calling and what that looks like. And we're gonna look at beginning in February some ways in which we can participate in that. It's going to be very healthy for us as followers of Jesus, right? But what we need to understand is there's this initial invitation into his kingdom, which then reorients, reorders our entire lives, our entire way of thinking, what we once deemed so valuable and important. That gets flipped upside down, doesn't it, as you are a follower of Jesus. And you go, you know what? I don't elevate power or see it the way that I used to, but I want to use it in a way to uplift others, to put them above myself, to raise them beyond me. Wealth, children, children. Marriage, we can go down the list of idolatry in our society and we begin to invert it and put it in its proper place under submission of Jesus as followers of Jesus. Hear this this morning. Kingdom as vocation is a holistic approach to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What is kingdom as vocation? John Stackhouse writes, vocation is the divine calling to be a Christian in every mode of life. I like that language, calling to be a Christian in every mode of life. Have you thought about the implications of that ever? How many of you are a Christian when you come to church? You don't have to raise your hand. I mean, we all try to be a little more Christian at church, <laughs> right? We swear a little less, okay? We try not to flip anybody off Sunday morning because they know where the Christian's going to church, we try to be a little nicer. Like, we all try it on Sundays. He's like, no, 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 no. This is in every mode of life, down to the littlest moment with your two year old, with your bitter boss, with your world that's falling apart. And you're saying, in every mode of my life, what it means to be a Christian in God's kingdom, what it means is to have this vocation to be called into what He is doing. Stackhouse continues. Public as well as private, religious as well as secular, adult as well as juvenile, corporate as well as individual, female as well as male. And T. Wright said, "It doesn't work to care only about our heavenly home, which is more Plato than Christian." No, the Christian is about living out the vocation, bringing beauty and noting it whenever possible. Do you want to turn over to first Peter to last set of scripture as we wind this down here this morning? 9 through 13. Jesus has come. He's lived. He's taught. He has healed. He has miraculously done things. He's been hated. He's been despised. He's been rejected. He's been murdered. He's been resurrected. He's met with his disciples. He has ascended. He has given us the Holy Spirit. And here's what Peter writes to those who are following Jesus. You are a chosen vocation. (laughs) You are a chosen race. Who are you? A royal priesthood, a holy nation. Holy cow, Peter kingdom vocation right there all along, sitting in First Peter. This is who you are. Then he goes on and says, a people for his own possession, that you may do what? Proclaim, this is the calling on your life, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. He is saying, look, this is who you were. You are a people who are part of darkness. Jesus has come in and transformed your entire life and now you are walking in his light which has radically altered who you You are as a person, and has redirected the trajectory of your life to walk in Him, and it looks so different in a hostile environment. First Peter was written at a time when Christians were being murdered, killed, and persecuted, and Peter doesn't say, "Get an insurrection, kill Nero, find a way to get out of this." He says, "This is the kind of people you are to be—light in the midst of darkness, a bright shining light." showing forth the goodness of Jesus in your culture right now. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you did not have mercy, now you have mercy. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What is kingdom vocation? It's exactly what Peter just said. Called from darkness, brought forth into light. Now go and do good things. So simple. Why do we have to take 30 minutes to unpack it? We're dense sometimes. We need to be reminded of what it means to walk in this kingdom. Scott McKnight puts it this way. When one has turned their focus in life from the world toward the kingdom, is a person doing kingdom work. When one has turned their focus in life from the world toward the kingdom, is a person doing kingdom work. Are you walking in this kingdom? You are an ambassador, a representation of the king, and you go forth today and you do kingdom work in your two-year-old's life. You do kingdom work in your neighbor's life. You do kingdom work when you bring your car to the mechanic and they overcharge you. Oh, you do kingdom work when you sit there and you think, how much should I really tip this person? They don't deserve it. You do kingdom work as followers of Jesus. It's not just me, a staff, church leadership. It's you as you mingle in community group. As you spend time in the community outside of here. As you go to work, we are about his kingdom some really practical ways that it plays out. I was listening to a fantastic, fascinating podcast by N.T. Wright on this. You can Google N.T. Wright and Kingdom as Vocation, and you can get some ideas of where some of this thought process came from. One of the questions gets asked of him what this actually practically gets down to in our lives. And one of the things that he said is, before the elites, those with power, those with influence begin to make a difference in an area that's seen some upheaval or problems, It's God's people who go in and start orphanages, schools, feed the poor, and the needy. And it's when they begin to see something birth and come forth that those who are in power then begin to try to capitalize on what has gone on in that community and help. But N.T. Wright says he always sends in, he always sends in the meek first. That is kingdom vocation. Christians on the forefront of the problems of the world going forth, bringing the good news of Jesus through the gospel and tangibly through the things that we can do in the community around us. Very ordinary people. Though C.S. Lewis says there's no ordinary people and I agree with that. But very ordinary people doing ordinary things like bringing a meal to the family that just had a baby in our church this week. A like shoveling your neighbor's driveway. ordinary things. And Peter says, do these things. May people see your good works. Vocation, this idea of kingdom as vocation, brings about human flourishing in the world around us. I want to leave you with this last thought as Michael comes back up and gets ready to lead us in song and just some thoughts. I think it's really important for us this morning. Kind of ask ourselves, okay, get vocation but I get I get kingdom kind of. I get it how like Ladd put it, it's confusing, but I get it. What does it mean for me? What do you think through these seven pillars? Justice, beauty, spirituality, relationship, freedom, truth, power. And think how you're bringing that into work, family, church, raising children. Uh, you can sports, the community you go hang out with. How are you? As a people, making kingdom as vocation, not just something you do on Sundays to feel better about yourself. I mean, that's a real question. Do you have employees. How are you showing truth and justice and friendship and beauty, freedom, with them? Are you an employee? How are you showing that back to those who employ you? Do you get a small group. How are you bringing that into your small group? We ache for these. And in kingdom, what Jesus has brought, we see the beginning of the restoration of it and a way for us to live it out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your calling, you giving us purpose and meaning, bringing our very lives into existence. And when we break things and wreck things and ruin things and invert things, you brought yourself and restored things and have given us yourself holy for us to live in a completely different way in your kingdom, to participate in it. God, I pray that that would seep deep into our bones here at this church and we'd be about these things because you have changed us. In Jesus' name.